A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, from writers to composers and musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Harun Mirza, who creates installations including sound, light, objects and videos. These complex and evolving experiences immerse the viewer in varied sensory phenomena while building fascinating connections between their materials, formally and in the meanings that they produce. Haroon was born in 1977 in London, where he lives and works today. He studied painting at Winchester School of Art in southern England and then an MA in Design Critical Practice and Theory from Goldsmiths College in London and another MA in Fine Art from Chelsea College of Art and Design in 2007. It wasn't long before Haroon's work was making a significant impact. He was included in the Bloomberg New Contemporaries exhibition in Liverpool and London in 2008 and showed Tack Attack, a work which set the blueprint for his sculptural and sonic installations, featuring a video shot in Pakistan that you'll hear us discuss later, alongside a turntable with a Sufi statuette, a Quran rest, fairy lights, an LED circuit and a radio, all linked by thematic or electronic connections. Haroon's rise was rapid, so much so that in 2011 he won the Silver Lion for the most promising artist in the Venice Biennale. The work he showed in Venice was the National A Pavilion of Then and Now, one of a group of structures using anechoic chambers, rooms covered in foam cones so that they have no reflected sound and therefore create an enhanced sense of inhabiting one's own body, amplifying its sonic properties. In the chamber was a circle of light that grew brighter in response to a sharp electronic tone before plunging us into darkness as the space fell silent. It was an intense, arresting and distinctive experience worthy of the Biennale Award and it's now in the collection at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Haroon describes himself as a composer as much as an artist, and while that term obviously has a resonance relating to music and sound, it's also descriptive of the way that he assembles his work from the distinct materials. If he has a medium, he says it's electricity, and he thrives on its vitality and volatility. One feels in Haroon's installations that they're a living organism rather than a static phenomenon. He lays bare the connections that prompt these kinetic experiences, exposing his process. Cables often trail across his works. Objects sit apparently casually on the floor or in groups, often structured like a gathering of people as they respond to each other. He's developed complex systems to harness these relationships between the elements of his installations, including a device he calls Emerging Paradigm, which he describes in our conversation. The structures underpinning his work bring it into intriguing relationships with diverse cultural forms. The rules and governing principles relate to conceptual and minimal art, for instance, while the blurring of noise and organised sound owes a debt to experimental music. Haroon encourages these slippages between disciplines and consistently pushes his work into new territories, collaborating with filmmakers, choreographers and musicians from electronic, rock and classical spheres. The term polyphony is perhaps over overused in relation to art, but in Haroon's case, his practice is genuinely polyphonic, using a huge variety of sounds, but also a plethora of voices from across the cultural spectrum. It's also become more issue-driven in recent years, directly confronting global politics. Aquarius, a huge installation from 2017, reflected on Brexit in the UK and on broader geopolitical issues with sequences including gameplay from an Iraq war-themed video game, Desert Strike. And climate change has also become an increasing focus. He's used solar panels extensively, including in Marfa in Texas, where his installation prompted a surge of interest in harnessing solar technology. 
technologies. The natural world has crept increasingly into his installations too. Cacti, for instance, and mushrooms, both of which he's used in part because of their ability to produce altered states. Indeed, alternative spaces of consciousness have interested Haroon from the start of his musical experiments, and he's long investigated particular frequencies for their trance-inducing or mood-enhancing properties. Often, these relate to long-established cultural traditions and religious rituals like shamanic drumming techniques or Tibetan singing bowls. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Is he as much interested in the sociological meanings and practices of sound and light as he is in their technical and formal properties? I mean, my work did start with the technicalities of sound, really, and, and trying to understand acoustic space as opposed to visual space and the relationships between the two, uh, inspired by McLuhan, you know, and he was talking about media, but when he talked about acoustic space and how metaphorically it's like how media travels through time and space. But then it was, for me, it was like a physical thing, you know, just understanding how it's different, but it's still space you know so it did come from a very sort of practical and technical perspective but slowly you know I think the sociological and physiological sort of really became a really strong part of it and sound practices and this could be anything from music you know folk music or otherwise oral traditions but then also other uses of sound such as healing you know and lots of different types of cultural practices that involve sound in some way and that's yeah that's quite a sort of vast and diverse landscape I guess and sometimes those are really palpably in the work aren't they so for instance you will have a Tibetan singing bowl and I noticed in the new works that you've got for Listen Gallery this spring you've got tablas and for instance you've referenced shamanic drumming and so on so there can be quite specific references and physical presences of those elements in the work yeah for sure in fact for this iteration or this project the tablas have been uh, replaced by bongos you know and this is an interesting thing because a cultural reference and, and yeah the reference with tabla is very different to bongos for instance but the core is somehow the same you know for me certainly thinking about what drumming means in certain parts of culture or in certain parts of the world and the history of drumming whether it's for music or for ritual or for the other purposes you know kind of all those nuances really make a difference whether it's tabla or bongos you know and also you know these works are very modular in the sense that some elements appear in other installations and then they would appear in these you know elements of certain works can swap depending on what the wider installation is and uh, and they're not works in themselves they're more like components so this instance where there was this sort of uh, robot arm playing tabla the tablas have been swapped out for bongos so the histories and the kind of narratives and and the context really changes just from that little switch and of course one of the most interesting things about that as you say is that again talking about the physical properties of sound mm. what i love about your work is this real attention to certain frequencies and certain mm. details of sound so for instance the tabla has very particular frequencies which i'm sure are very different to bongos and you've zoned in on certain frequencies and the meanings and practices relating to those haven't you tell me about that. yeah there's a couple of things with with that really because the tabla and the bongos the, the drumming is really related to this idea of shamanic drumming and when i say shamanic i mean like this is like a wide open idea of shamanism where certain things repeat in certain time periods and geographic and cultural demographics of people doing these practices so there's this idea of shamanic drumming which is a very particular frequency or speed of drumming which is between three and six up to eight hertz right I mean, eight is really fast for drumming and, you know, three is kind of coming. But curiously, those speeds, that frequency is very similar to the neural oscillations. So they're related to theta waves, basically. And that's when your brain is in a state of calm and uh, meditation or even sleep. So that sort of range, it's kind of interesting that these drumming rituals are around that frequency but then there's also other frequencies in the work that you know are kind of poignant in the show in this exhibition 
which is 111 hertz. And that has its own other both historical and uh, neurological interest. What you do by sort of alerting us, I guess, to those frequencies is to link in sound with a whole series of belief systems. And in a true sort of artist fashion, what you're saying is that science is a belief system as well as religion. So tell us about that interest (laughs) in those kind of structures, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of contentious to say, you know, science is a belief system like religion. What's the easiest way to sort of say this in a way that it's not contentious <laughs> is um you can be as contentious yeah, as you like yeah, exactly yeah science is just a religion no <laughs> uh it's the relationship we have to certain belief systems and and thought processes and ways of doing and seeing and hearing you know and you know one could argue like football is a religion right and you become religious about football religion is an interesting word in itself because there's no real definition of religion if you kind of go on the Wikipedia of the word religion, I'm sure it changes every 30 seconds, you know. And there is no kind of unified idea of what religion actually means. Science, on the other hand, it's based on empirical observation, you know, of that kind of uh, our sort of, you know, this idea of being proven, you know. But even the idea of something being proven, there's a bit of leeway in that, you know. There's always rounding off, you know, and there's lots of parts of, the scientific process that you have to just kind of slip by and then there's the stuff that's just not understood you know so just in terms of the observable universe you know we have this idea of the big bang but we've got no idea what happened before the big bang and why that happened then we've got what we can observe in the universe and we don't know what's beyond right and then we have scale and that's more about scale I guess, the macro and general classical physics. And then we have the quantum, which doesn't really match with the classical because of gravity. And then, you know, we don't really know why any of that happens, you know, because we don't know why a particle is also a wave. We don't know why particles change their mind. (laughs) Not that they have a mind, but, you know. So there's these kind of unknowns. And I think All these things are about the unknown and about engaging with the unknown, whether it's God, which is an unknown thing. You know, it's kind of, in some ways, it's irrelevant if there's a God or not. It's like the, for me, it's like the wrong question, you know, because it is an unknown. It can only ever be an unknown. And the same with science. I personally don't believe we can work everything out. It's just not within our capacity as human beings, as with these babbling, physical, functioning or (laughs) non-functioning animals. I wanted to ask you about the organic and the created and one of the things that you've said is that electricity is your medium but of course electricity is a sort of natural phenomenon and you've increasingly been engaging in organic matter in recent works there are ants for Mm. instance and cacti and so on would you say that you've always engaged with the natural world or is that a new phenomenon in your work in the sense that there seems to be an increasingly ecological outlook for instance Mm. so when I studied my undergraduate degree at Winchester I went and studied painting because I was painting landscapes and even after I graduated I was painting landscapes for a while seascapes so the seascapes is quite interesting because it's this preoccupation with waves and then landscape is you know it's literally about nature so I've always been kind of a landscape painter in a way you know this this kind of trying to observe and celebrate nature whether that's the sea or bits of the ocean or the universe or the cosmos you know I think it's all it's all kind of part of the same interest I would say and like you said electricity is is a natural phenomenon and you know that's the curiosity and this is the same with quantum mechanics or or physics is it's nature in the end it's trying to understand nature and the most interesting part of it is the bits that we don't understand the bits that don't behave like they're supposed to you know and are kind of curious and interesting (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to ask about the way that you manifest the works in space because on the one hand there are things that i find completely delightful or wondrous about your work in the sense that things are happening as an effect of the materials you're bringing together Mm. But on the other hand, you are laying that process bare for us. So we can see, we can literally follow how those things are happening. Mm. And yet you do create that wonder. Is that a very distinct balance that you are sort of making decisions about in the studio? You know, do you want to achieve a certain level of 
unexplainable wonder whilst also explaining process? I'm not 100% sure. Because I'm aware of it, I do let it happen. But it doesn't happen because I'm trying to make it happen. It just happens because that's where the work leads. It's kind of like it just does it because that's what's required. So it's kind of the form following function, right? So it's this idea that, oh, I've got this, for instance, this formicarium, right? I want to create a formicarium where the ants have to cross this sensor so they can create sounds, right? But in order to do that, there's all these requirements, you know, for what the ants need. You know, they need certain types of materials and food and other things to survive, you know, temperature, humidity, all these things. So there's this process of making sure that all those things are there, but then that requires certain materials and certain processes. But I still want to achieve this thing. So the form really comes out of that. And then some things just have to be laid bare and some things obviously can be concealed, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it being exposed. In fact, you know, I like the idea that you can see the mechanics of something. You know, it's not mystified. It's completely demystified. You can see how it functions and how it works and that it's, it's just a normal thing. It's not, it's not magic because the magic is what happens. You know, <laughs> the magic is like the fact that the ants do what they do and they have the capacity to do these like, incredible things and at the same time create music (laughs) (laughs) let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now who was the first artist whose work you loved um, the first artist whose work I love, it depends how far back we're going. I think <laughs> I really have vivid rem- memories of Rothko and Jackson Pollock as a kid. You know, I can actually remember splattering paint on a piece of paper. So yeah, those, and then Dali, I was really into Dali for some reason, I guess. Uh, yeah, this ants. Yeah, uh, I guess, yeah, it makes sense, you know, especially, you know, how we thought about time and because I think I was just into painting. I mean, this I'm talking when I'm like seven or eight, you know, as a, as a kid, maybe Dali was probably a bit later, probably like 13, 14 you know, at school. But I think thinking back, yeah, just just how he thinks about space and time is kind of interesting conceptually rather than, you know, just uh, visually. You know, a turning point for me to get actually interested in art was the YBAs, I have to say. It was it was that it was sensation and right. seeing sensation. You know, so I think I went to see it two or three times when it was here at the Royal Academy. I actually got obsessed with the paintings at the time so Richard Patterson photo you know his like blue minotaur painting that was in the show and then there was like some toy motorcycle things it's a funny thing to say this like thing about photorealism (laughs) and then you know obviously there was great artists like Sarah Lucas and Rachel Whitefried, for instance, you know, mm. she was super interested. I wasn't that into Damien Hirst for some reason. I mean, that actually, no, the, that A Thousand Years, that's the one with the flies. I don't know if that was in Sensation or not, but that was, you know, that was like a, an amazing work. I think it was. It was one of the works in the, in the Young British Artist Show by yeah. Saatchi. So, and it's great work. I mean, Lucian Freud said to Hirst, you've begun with the final act. I mean, what, what, <laughs> yeah, right. once he yeah. made that work, he didn't really need to go any, any further. Yeah, it's true, no, because it sort of went downhill from there. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Damon. Um, um, I mean, that's a, you know, an incredible work. But the, I think the main thing about that show was it kind of revealed to me that one could be an artist. You could actually do that as a vocation, as something that it's not just what unemployed people do. But Gary Hume used to say quite a lot of that's art. It's just what unemployed people, <laughs> unemployed people do. So that was important. But the photorealism thing was... I think for me, it was about perception. It was about this moment, this perceptual shift that happens when you're like seeing an image to looking at brushstrokes. So it's like from seeing to looking and it's like a slightly different focus. And it's very similar to when you're hearing sound or listening to it. It's a very similar perceptual shift. And I think that's why I was interested in photorealism. I was also into Richter, but he wasn't in that. I was going to ask about Richter because, of, as you said, you you began by painting seascapes. Yeah, and, of course, his right. seascapes were one factor in the many sort of yeah, images totally. that he's explored, you know, relentlessly. So Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, so Richter was a 
really important, I guess, influence when I was young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Duchamp is definitely an important point of reference. And he was a contemporary of Edgar Varese as well. So those two together, I think, are really important and formative. Although I haven't thought about either of them for ages, it's almost like they're always there in the subtext for me. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's true that you can absorb an influence and yet not have to refer to it yeah. much more after that very first moment. Yeah, I think there's something so deeply profound and special about both of them and their use of the everyday and converting the everyday into something. And also, you know, the lesser known parts, like for Duchamp, the reverse ready-made is kind of more interesting for me, you know, taking the Rembrandt off the wall and using it as an ironing board than the ready-made. So I feel like they both are always, Verez and Duchamp are always there in the background, in the subtext. In terms of Verez's influence. I mean, I urge people to listen to the poem Electronique because it is an extraordinary piece, but also it's really enlightening in the context of your practice, I think, to listen to that work. Yeah. Having seen your work manifest itself physically in, in space, to then have heard Verez after that, which is my experience, was really enlightening, actually, because mm. I, I can see that you're doing what he was doing, but with really interesting visual properties alongside it. Mm. It's an instructive kind of means of addressing influence I think mm. because it, you can hear him if you like in the work but it's not an homage necessarily mm. yeah I think the funny thing is is I don't really listen to Verez very often and it's the same with John Cage it's not like I um, sit down and listen to John Cage recordings but it's almost the process and there's actually a lot of you know composers Stockhausen is another one less so Reich and um, Philip Glass, I would say, that's got a different makeup to it somehow. But the others, and Max Newhouse is another one, the mm. others, it's more about kind of the essence and the idea of it and what can be used as material and how it can be used. And also not no distinction between whether it's music or something visual or it's just an engagement, it's just a practice with material. Yeah, it's super interesting. And which contemporary artist do you most admire? There's so many. I mean, Rosa Barber is a really inspiring, brilliant artist. Pierre Wieg, you know, Pierre Wieg, I guess, from his sort of engagement with nature as well, I think. Helen Martin, just because of the way she brings so many disparate things together. James Richards is another one mm. that I really admire. Uh, Seth Price yeah. is uh, an artist that I really admire. Corey Archangel. One of the things that unites all of those people that you've just mentioned seems to me to relate to your practice in terms of their open-endedness of the work, the way that the work can be a node within a network or the work doesn't have to finish once it's there. It's sort of, it's part of a continuum to a certain degree. And I always see that with your work. It feels like it's a step on the journey that's ongoing and going into all sorts of different directions at the same time. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's about asking questions yeah, and there's no possibility of an answer because it's just a question and it's, it is open-ended. And there's just a sensibility, like a sensibility of approach and very hands-on. You know, I think all of those artists are really hands-on in terms of fabrication and, and making, you know. So the work lets itself evolve rather than it just shows up and it, it is what it is, you know, because that's what happens when you design and fabricate things you know also a sort of sense of testing like yeah you know, i've just walked through your studio on the way here and i like the fact that it, it felt a bit like a lab you know mm. it felt like there were a series of proposals being tested here and explored yeah there definitely is here now i don't really know about all the artists that i've mentioned and what their studios are like and how they work i don't think i've visited any of their studios but you get that from the work which I kind of, I think I kind of like uh, or definitely relate to somehow. Yeah, it's also kind of being very physical with the work, I think. Tell me about your collaborations, because it seems to me that your work's generous in that sense, that you want to acknowledge collaboration, that you thrive on collaboration to a certain extent. And I think of things like when you were working with Chana Horowitz, mm. and there's a really fantastic work that emerged from that collaboration. Mm. Tell me about that. Well, you know, for me, collaboration is such a, 
wide open term anyway because you know it's so different working with different people every time you know and you know Chana is a interesting case in the sense that she wasn't around anymore when when I first encountered her work I think she died just a few months after that I saw her work in the Venice Biennale which would have been the 2013 edition I think and I was immediately hooked by it because they were so musical and so and the number eight it was everything was based on number eight and I was also working with systems and processes that eight was an important number because it's a binary number and it's uh, eight channels of sound that I was working mm. with at that time so they immediately sort of spoke to me as both audiovisual experiences which they were you know the sonokinetography series or they were scores for possible audiovisual experience you know they could they scores for whatever you know in a way in a way and it was an interesting experience then to make a system an artwork that is dedicated to transcribing those drawings and she wasn't around but her daughter ellen was and we worked really closely in developing that project and it was uh yeah it's one of my most special projects but that's just a form of collaboration that's not even with a person that's alive you know mm. but then i collaborate with people that <laughs> obviously uh, we work together on on projects uh one person being jack jelfs we did a residency at cern together and developed a bunch of works together another person well in this show is um helga dorothea fannon who's a who's a filmmaker i wanted to for many years make a film about this narrative that i developed for an opera loosely using the term opera and we became friends from our kids the kids were going to the same school together and yeah just her sensibility and her approach to filmmaking was kind of this perfect you know scenario to develop a film together you know i wanted to do it and i did speak to lots of filmmakers and producers and directors and all types of people but nothing was kind of right or made sense and then when helga came along it was just you know the conversation just led to it so naturally that it was just right and and the good thing about these types of collaborations is that i mean i work with film and i can shoot film i know how to work a camera and everything but there's so many things that i wouldn't consider myself i'm not really sure exactly what it is i do but i know that there's people that are better at making film you know working with film and video and whatnot there's people better at making music and working you know in that way working with clay or other you know so rather than attempt those things myself it's more interesting to collaborate with artists that that's their medium and kind of really forge a dialogue and then it also it's more interesting rather than you know sometimes i might commission works and things and they might be more artisanal things but it's way more interesting where it's two practices coming together and then it's co-authored i think i think the co-authorship is a uh, really fascinating it's like the third mind you know that's a great way of putting it what do you have pinned to the studio wall because you've obviously got a huge amount of material ideas going on at once do you have things on the wall as kind of reminders or triggers or so on or do you kind of keep too much information out of your mind yeah well you mean like a mood board yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i've never done mood boards i've never i've never had anything in terms of it, images or mm materials or like i just i've never done that for some reason i mean very rarely i might stick something up just because it's it feels like we're talking like three or four times in the last 20 years that i can right. remember right so you know i might make sketches or kind of small diagrams or works of something you know something that will go on the wall and sit on the wall for a long time so i can just keep but never mood boards I'm calling a mood boards because it's like I because it was a thing that I realized recently that oh you know I don't really do that mm. I don't know why I mean I can see the benefit of it but I for some reason everything sort of lingers around in my head and I even find it difficult to tell people explain to people people that work with me what it is you know for them to be able to help me realize sometimes you know and I'm like trying to like do something and they're like what are you trying to do and i'm like yeah and i'm trying to explain it so it's quite a crutch actually it's quite frustrating but it must be really fascinating because it's <laughs> you know it's almost like a stream of consciousness of kind of technical things and ideas that will be forming in your mind that you somehow have to translate into a practical language to yeah. bring it into a reality yeah this is it it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a practical language because a language the communication part of it is the artwork 
you know so all this stuff that you have in your head that you're trying to like firstly understand yourself because i'm not going to understand it sometimes until a year later and you know after the artwork is finished you're trying to understand that yourself and you have to make the work to be able to sort of understand it yourself then you're like communicating that to other people and then even in that communication it changes into something else. it changes into its own thing so it's a bit of a non-starter <laughs> in, in some ways <laughs> but, but, can that, can, but can that inspiration happen at any time you know can you be sitting on a train or on a bus yeah. or whatever and you suddenly start making connections yeah yeah it usually does happen anytime yeah it, it, it seldom happens in the studio usually happens yeah like on a bus or a train or like flights are quite good sitting in airport waiting lounges or whatever showers just before you're going to sleep that's a good moment it's hardly ever in the studio. What happens in the studio? The accidents. You know, the thing that you're trying to do because you had that epiphany the night before, then you're trying to do that thing and it doesn't work. It goes all wrong, but something else happens, which is far better. So that's the way it works. It's John Cage again. It's embracing chance. Yeah, embracing chance. Yeah, definitely. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 150 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are Montclair State University Galleries and the Alaska Native Heritage Centre in the US and the Ben Uri Gallery and Museum in London. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find several museums in which Harry Mirza has had notable presentations, like Yorkshire Sculpture Park, the Hepworth Wakefield and Camden Arts Centre in the UK and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The MoMA Guide has numerous features with in-depth audio content, including those on current exhibitions like Guillermo del Toro crafting Pinocchio and the collection displays across several floors of the museum. It also includes detailed verbal descriptions of major MoMA works designed for audiences who are blind or have low vision. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Probably Chisholm Hill and Whitechapel because they're the closest, although I haven't been visiting galleries much recently. Uh, the approach is quite close. My favourite museum in the world that I've only visited once is the Van Haber Museum. <laughs> I just love that museum for some reason. Um, it's in Eindhoven, isn't it? It's, it's, Eindhoven, it's a, it's a yeah. real, again, we talked yeah. about studios and yeah. laboratories, but it's exactly. a, Van Haber Museum's a real laboratory museum. Definitely, it? yeah. It's great. Everything about it, the architecture. I really love the Hepworth, actually talking about architecture and the way the museum is built. I think some people probably get annoyed that there's no right angles in a space, but <laughs> I find it quite good. But that's really important in your work, isn't it? Because you are an architect of space to a certain degree. You build space. Mm. And therefore, I can imagine that the conditions of a museum are really, really important in terms of yeah. how you ultimately want to realise it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did a show many years ago at the uh, Maxi in Rome, right? And most people hate that museum. You know, they're like, oh, you can't even hang a painting in there. <laughs> this is a Zaha design space. Yeah, course, yeah, which I get. And, you know, I'm, I've got to say, I'm not a big fan of her work, but... Actually, that museum and the one in Seoul, the idea is, it's even called the Museum for the 21st Century, right? The idea for that museum was it's a museum for the 21st century. And I buy that because art isn't just paintings and sculptures and these, you know, and installation and kind of working with the architecture is definitely a thing that's here to stay and is going to evolve. So I kind of value that, I think, in that way. So I don't mind, I, you know, I quite like these museums that aren't, white cubes and boxes and and just you know sort of conventional i think i prefer these more experimental architecture type museums which cultural experience changed the way you see the world it would be too obvious to say something like 9-11 or covid they're like massive things i wanted to ask you because it seems to me a really formative experience was your visit to pakistan in in 2008 yeah i guess so i mean the thing with that visit was what happened Bhutto was murdered assassinated and i just happened to be there at the time and then it became really chaotic every time i went to pakistan around that time there was like something crazy that happened so one time Bhutto was assassinated and all hell broke loose and there was a curfew and it was kind of pretty intense and then another time I was in Islamabad and a, a bomb exploded nearby. And those experiences are kind of intense experiences. But I think Pakistan is a 
really important place for me because there's my heritage and my family. And I went there, I traveled there as a kid. You know, I speak the language. There's all you know, the languages badly, but you know, <laughs> well enough. So they're important, but those experiences, they were really intense and full on experiences, but I don't know if they're as formative as something like the period between the falling of the Tin Towers and Trump coming into power or right. COVID and post COVID, the shift that happened with the pandemic the cultural and sociological, you know, everything that changed, you know, the two are connected actually for me, you know, fundamentally, you know, this sort of wave of right-wing politics and ideology in relation to the pandemic, you know, the response to the pandemic would have been very different if we had different politics of the time. Absolutely. Would you say that Aquarius, the piece that you made in 2017, which is actually sort of post Britain leaving the EU and had certain like elements of the sort of language and culture around Brexit as part of it but would you say that that would be almost like your most direct engagement with that kind of political territory yeah yeah I think so and that series of works which is the emerging paradigm series there's probably two in there one is called 9-11-11-9 which is the it's a typographic just mirrored idea of the day that the Twin Towers fell to the day that it was announced that Trump would be in power that work and Aquarius, yeah, they're both very much engaging with that whole shift in social and cultural ideologies. And then what happens after that moves away from being explicitly about the politics to being more about the context and the cultural and sociological context around living in this massive shift. Emerging paradigm is also a technique or rather a, a kind of it's a media structure. Exactly, yeah. that's what I was going to say, a media device. Yeah. yeah. Tell me tell me more about that, because it, it really is fascinating. So basically, you, you kind of created a media player, which which exists exclusively within the context of your work, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's basically a device that basically runs, it's a very technical thing, it's a media player, so it runs four channels of video in sync, but also synchronizes it up to 24 channels of electrical signals together. So yeah, it just allows me to make those types of installations where there's electrical signals, which are seen and heard through LED lights and speakers. It does other things as well. For So for instance, in this exhibition, there's going to be an emerging paradigm device. There will be two videos, two channels of video and this drumming robot thing (laughs) (laughs) and some other bits and bobs so it's quite a versatile thing but it allows me to make these types of complex installations and you know everything can be composed controlled defined you know and is it entirely generative in the sense it's not necessarily looped or no yes effectively it changes consistently yeah it generates electrical signals but then the videos are obviously we can loop them or do whatever but like uh, the electrical signals are coming out live yeah i wanted to go back to your visit to pakistan in 2008 because of, mm. we've talked about drumming and and shamanic drumming mm. but you kind of encountered shamanic drumming in the making of food in a market that there's that uh, in, yeah. in tack attack yeah. which is one of your sort of seminal early yeah. works if you like there is a, <laughs> a man doing this extraordinary thing with meat on a kind of a hot plate yeah and right. it seems to me that really relates to the whole shamanic drumming because he's creating yeah. this amazing rhythm right yeah it was incredible you know so that was what was his name unwear or something he was just a street chef you know he was preparing this dish that's made with offal with just innards of a goat and you know they everything is consumed so there's one dish called brain masala where they just mince up but basically the process is just mincing the meat on this big sort of flat iron hot plate and it gets its name from that takatak is that it's you know it's like a, a phonetic sort of the etymology is just the sound yeah yeah it becomes a performance you know and it is that same speed you know between three and eight hertz and he just did an incredible job of performing this mincing you know and uh, yeah it was just this you know it's a work in itself but also just every day which is i think uh the key to it this thing that it's it's a it's an everyday practice it's a ritual that happens every day and it, i mean obviously there's a showmanship to it there's also a function there's also like a a need and a context it's just a super interesting practice which writers or poets do you return to the most i'm just listening to audio because i'm like desperately 
terribly dyslexic so it takes me ages to read so i i listen to audiobooks now mostly and it's just easier because i can do other things at the same time right now i'm reading or listening to valis the philip k dick novel it's sort of an autobiography about him going mad basically and having visions from god and all kinds of stuff before uh, valis the last novel i would have read is tom mccarthy's remainder which is about loops I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's like mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's got amnesia and he's trying to piece together his old life. But, by, but in trying to do that, he just creates all these scenarios and gets actors to create these scenarios too. But they're, they're loops. They're very much like, if you've ever seen these Ragnar Kjartesson installations where he creates these like loops, you know, in real time with actors and props and everything, mm-hmm. sets and stuff. So otherwise, I don't really read fiction i read a lot of like uh yeah technical stuff like i don't know richard feynman and roger penrose and uh, well a lot of physics stuff do you read them in order to make work or do you read them out of interest and then they might prompt work if you like you know can you, can you read a book a science book as, as, as a means of research for projects as it were a little bit i think i got into science or reading about science i was always into science. i was asked to make a proposal for doing this residency at cern and mm. i didn't want to do it unless i knew a little bit about quantum mechanics or particle physics so i started reading and learning about particle physics then I, it took me a year to do it and then i decided to uh, apply for the residency but then even then i did it with jack who trained as a physicist so it was you know i kind of didn't want to go in cold i wanted to get something out of it i wanted to be able to have a grasp on the language to be able to engage with it but then i kind of really got into it not just physics itself but sort of some yeah ideas i mean i'm just looking actually what i've been reading or listening to (laughs) there's a a lot of um david graeber there's debt which he wrote and then the dawn of everything which was also with david wengro which is a super interesting account of like the history of humanity through a sort of post-colonial lens i guess and thinking about economy in a very different way which is yeah You've mentioned Philip K. Dick there, and I know that you've used Olaf Stapledon in the past when you were Mm. doing your work about the Dyson Sphere, and it seems to me that there's a sort of coexistence between scientific reading and science fiction reading that, in a way, kind of describes the condition of your work to a certain degree. There is a scientific principle underlying it, but there is an element of science fiction involved too. Yeah, well, the Dyson Sphere is an interesting point here because i never read the book you know i really understood it from freeman dyson and you know funnily enough it's named after him but he was obviously influenced by science fiction so there's always been this to and fro from science fiction and science you know we see that and technology we see that all the time you know the 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 relationship between science technology and and science fiction is kind of fascinating it's like a chicken and egg thing as well right so for me, they're both just as informative. So I, I would say that someone like Kurt Vonnegut is books like Breakfast of Champions is more influential for me in terms of like the reality and what reality is than something like Neuromancer or, or any Philip K. Dick novel. Actually, this Phallus is quite interesting because it's more about him going mad, which is for me more interesting than electronic sheep you know right um, or or, you know uh, the sort of blade runner narrative We've obviously already covered music because it's so much part of your work. But one of the the interesting things is, of course, you're making sound in the studio all the time. But there must be moments when you're making physical things and sculptural elements of the work. I'm wondering, do you listen to music in the studio when you're not actually making sound? Yeah, yeah, usually, yeah. So, I mean, I mainly just put on NTS. Which is a London-based radio station. Which is a London-based, really local in Dalston radio station. So I usually listen to that, and that's got such a diverse... There's also the French radio FIP that I listen to quite a bit. Then if I've bought a record, I'll play that. We sometimes just play records in the studio. There's a lot of vinyl in the studio. For that to happen, it has to be relatively calm. (laughs) uh, Because somebody needs to change the record. (laughs) Yeah, so all kinds of stuff ends up being played. Sometimes, you know, when things are really intense, like just don't have a moment to put on you know I'm, I'm like i get so like focused and into like in the last couple of days i noticed that there was no music but I just it became 
lesser priorities for some reason you know um yeah when higher concentration yeah, is yeah, needed then yeah exactly yeah it drifts away yeah. yeah i don't know if it's the coding i guess needs quite a bit of concentration so I probably won't be listening to much when i'm coding but even then it's only emails or phone calls and stuff where i turn music down actually otherwise it's usually music yeah i mean we talked about things which changed your world earlier on and of course when you were experiencing acid house as, mm. as a young man Mm. that was clearly a kind of life-changing experience to a certain degree yeah it is for me because and i didn't know at the time but it was the sound of electricity so you know these electronic instruments probably like a 303 and and some other sort of synth roland based synths and not so much the drum machines but those since i think especially the ones that use pulse width modulation i mean 303 doesn't but what does it who knows Uh, (laughs) you know there was this immediate engagement with the sound of electricity that it's a really important moment i think probably has a bit to do with acid as well but you know that's that's another story but i think that it is super important for me to have that relationship between this altered state of consciousness and the sound of electricity or music and rhythm and these things and there's still a legacy of that in what you do now right in the sense that it's a few years ago now but you made a work which was called shelf for carl cox so there are direct references to dance music in yeah. your work and i know that richie horton was an influence as well as a yeah sort of important techno producer and so on yeah for sure i mean just the sort of techno and electronic music and that side of things and djing and beat mixing and these kind of practices as well have been really sort of formative and important for me so would you say in a way that you know of course djing is a kind of collaging of sound and your work does have a kind of collage aesthetic or assemblage aesthetic right yeah and it's also the kind of this jigsaw thing you know like disparate things come together but there's this sort of coherence in beat mixing it is the, the just the matching of the of the beat you know getting them at the same tempo and then i mean obviously there's other forms of mixing two records together but that's one but yeah having that synchronization element and then phasing as well you know those things are really kind of come from yeah dj culture what other media influence your work well film i guess i was going to ask about film actually because you made a work called access boot yeah yeah. which was of course related to das boat and that was inspired by the context in which you created it which was a kind of disused military bunker in france yeah exactly in saint nazir you know the nazis were building u-boats there so it was kind of i'd seen the film as a kid and and sort of really vividly felt something from it even though I'd forgotten the sort of plot and everything, I kind of, it was really sort of present in my psyche. And so I kind of went back to it for creating that show. But then there's all kinds of films, I guess I've referenced in my work, like Bergman's Persona is another one. Mm. Um, Jodorowsky, I guess, is probably quite important in the show that we're doing now. I think probably he's one of Helga's influences as well. So yeah, so much that comes from film. I wanted to ask about um, choreography as well, because it seems to me that you've had really fruitful collaborations with choreographers. So, Mm. for instance, Wayne McGregor and Julie Cunningham and so on. It seems to me that it's interestingly when you're working with sound and light, that forum provides a really fertile territory for dance and choreography. Yeah, I think for me, I'm basically into the idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk, right? So, and for me, opera does that, but I'm not really into opera. That's the problem. So there are operas that I like. I went to see Carmen the other night and I mean, it was good and I'm into it and I really love the ambition of it. But I feel like there's so much convention and so many sort of ties to a certain ideology that it really bothers me, you know. You know, just putting the form opera into a post-colonial context just doesn't work for me. It's also the, you know, the set idea of the auditorium, the stage, the backstage, the wings, you know, everything about it kind of bothers me. Yeah, I just get frustrated by it. But all the problems that I have with opera, and there are some that I like, like Philip Glass operas I really like, uh, Einstein on the Beach, Mm. uh, for instance. But opera... It is the Gesamtkunstwerk for me, you know, and also this narrative that's sung, you know, storytelling in song. There's something about it that's really fascinating to me. And choreography and dance then means that you can work within that sphere without yeah. having to be kind of like in a formal space of an opera. 
Yeah, for sure. But it's also the thing that's interesting to me mostly is where all those things sort of merge into one thing. So what I try and work with when I work with choreographers, actually, I'm developing a kind of a operatic work now or, you know, I, I use the term opera, but it's not. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't um, you know the idea that the dancer is she or he is an instrumentalist as well as a dancer as well as a singer so there might be an object that creates sounds all those things merge together so the object that's also the set is also an instrument you know and the dancer is also playing that instrument as well as dancing and maybe singing, telling the story and narrative, you know. So when all those things sort of start to merge together, it becomes super interesting. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? There are rituals, but there's so many different rituals that overlap. I feel like there's just one underlying ritual, but I wouldn't know what that was. You know, soldering is probably the closest thing to like the crux of the physical practice, you know, the medium thing. But that sounds really nap. No, I love the fact. That I almost feel like that is your kind of like your medium. You're the, you're a master of the soldering iron. You know? Yeah, yeah. The the technique, but the the medium is more electricity. Yeah. But then it's kind of like channeling electricity. You see, so you're kind of it's it's a weird thing. It's more elusive than oil color electricity. Right. Uh, it's got it's got a it's got a very yeah hard to grasp character. The other day there was a couple of us in the studio and. Uh, something needed to be sold and we were all like I'll do it no I'll do it no I'll do it it's like and then I was like oh my god we're all like we're all like perverse about soldering what's that <laughs> something soothing about it There's something, I mean, that sort of yeah. almost like alchemical or something yeah but it's also it's for me it's mini welding as well because it's you know you're welding things essentially but it's miniature it's kind of nice it's really linked with jewelry making as well so there's this kind of yeah cool if you could live with just one work of art what would it be just one work of art that's not that's not fair you know it's like a <laughs> desert island uh what would it be uh it might have to be like a van gogh painting or i don't know it's really hard i don't think i could do it <laughs> i don't think i could do it i would i would just have to maybe <laughs> a money maybe a money when you when, when you yeah. first yeah i don't know why but there's like it holds up we didn't talk about him earlier but it holds something for me i'm thinking about something quite sort of pleasant as well but that's probably wrong i wouldn't want anything pleasant <laughs> pleasure's all right you, you're allowed pleasure no i mean as in it, you might get bored of it that's the thing isn't it when you've got the same thing all the time you don't want to become complacent and lastly what's art for what's art for everyone <laughs> it's for everyone that's what it's for yeah i don't i don't know it's like what we're talking about those unknowable questions at the beginning Thank you so much. You're welcome. Cheers. Haroon Mirza is at the Listen Gallery in London from the 24th of February to the 8th of April. And you can listen to Haroon's modular opera EP at Bandcamp. That's haroonmirza.bandcamp.com. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Haroon Mirza. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.